David the king was grieved and moved. He went to his chamber, his chamber, and wept. And as he went, he wept and said, To God I had died, would to God I had died, would to God I had died for thee. O Absalom, my son, my William Billings was a composer during the Revolutionary War. He's an odd fellow. Historians describe him in a really strange way. They describe him as a gargoyle. He was a man who was blind in one eye. He was limp in one leg. He had a terrible example of personal hygiene. He had addiction to tobacco, which is probably why he died at age 54. He was a tanner by trade a composer on the side. And what was most notably about him, he was a personal friend of some of the guys you and I have heard of before. Sam Adams, Paul Revere. Today we're embracing some of our tradition here at Randall Church. We're, we're looking at some old hymns that we've enjoyed to sing. But Billings is one who wrote one of the earliest hymnals. In fact, the earliest hymnal that we have here in the Americas he was a writer of choral songs and compiled many of them to create the first American uh, hymnal, on the front of which his friend, Paul Revere, engraved the front of it before it went to printing so that he would have a cover for his hymnal. He delayed the printing for more than a year because he wanted to make sure that it was printed on paper that was only found here from the colonial states. He didn't want to utilize any English imports. And included songs like, While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night, When Jesus Wept, and the song that I just sang, taken directly from 2 Samuel chapter 18, David's Lamentation. The melodic line of the song is as beautiful as it is haunting. Billings has captured something in the way that that song is written through music. The heart of a man who has endured tremendous amounts of suffering. And yet if you're someone who has an ear for music, and many of you are, there's this, there's this note, there's this tone that's in the middle of it. It's called the dominant seventh, actually. It's this note that actually is a, is a moment of hope, a glimmer of hope in a minor key. It's kind of what I want to talk to you about today glimmers of hope when you are in your own personal desert. It's no surprise to you, but researchers have found that of the last 12 years, and they've, they, or 12 months, and then actually uh, released their reportings last month that the coronavirus pandemic is triggering an epidemic uh, of loneliness and isolation. 
Harvard researchers, as part of the project called Making Caring Common, found that 36% of respondents to a national survey of approximately 1,000 people, 1,000 Americans, reported feeling alone frequently or almost all of the time or even all of the time in the prior four weeks to when they took the survey. Now, a year previous, in the months before the pandemic, the same uh, group of people found that 25%, so much lesser number, recalled experiencing serious issues in those two months uh, before the pandemic. For those of you who have loved ones who've been in a nursing home uh, at some point in the last 12 months or spent uh, some time in the hospital, you know that they are often lonely and isolated and often afraid because there's no one around them, no one there to comfort them, no one to interact with them. But it's not just the old people uh, that are dealing with this. Perhaps the most striking in this report is that 61%, 61% of those who are 18 to 25 reported high levels of loneliness, significant changes in their mental health status. Many are feeling overwhelmed, feeling uncomfortable in their own skin, and even feeling unsafe in their own homes. And COVID-19 has introduced something new to us, a new term to us in society. Previous pandemics and widespread diseases like, like typhoid fever, it was dealt with in a certain way. We all understood that we're going to force quarantine on those who are sick for the sake of everyone else. But now there's a new term, self-quarantine, something known as social distancing, as you know, a relatively previously unknown Phenomenon when now hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world voluntarily confine themselves to their homes for dual reasons. First, to avoid contracting this virus that could do damage to them, and then secondly, to avoid spreading the virus to others until it was certain that they were not a carrier. In many ways, it was successful in limiting the spread of this disease. But self-quarantining, and this is no surprise to you, has many unanticipated consequences, including feelings of isolation, feelings of abandonment, of fear, of loneliness, and despondency. Human beings truly were designed and created and meant to function on this planet together. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Glimmers of hope when you're in your own personal desert, your own place of isolation. Specifically, though, today, I want to talk about the place that you reside, if it's a desert of your own making, a place of wilderness because of your own sin. You see, the Bible shows us today a revealing story about a man named King David who experienced a period of self-quarantine in his own life. But it was not the result of a global pandemic. It was the direct result and the consequence of his own sin. David was a man forgiven and restored by God. But what you're going to see today, even after full forgiveness, there are still consequences to sin that don't just disappear when we say or when someone says, I forgive you, or when God says, I forgive you. What I hope to show you today is from the life of David that sin not only does it have consequences and painful consequences, but there's still a glimmer of hope that remains. That Jesus has ultimately taken the sting out of those consequences. And so while the consequences of sin are painful, excruciatingly so, they are not devastating. In fact, Jesus Christ himself goes to the cross and is devastated himself on our behalf so that the consequences of your sin and mine could be redeemed. But we'll get there in a moment. 
I jumped right in this morning without introducing myself. My name is Pastor Milo. And if it's your first time with us here in the room, if it's your first time at home watching online, we are in a sermon series on the life of David. Uh, The toughest kid in all of Scripture, the most famous king in all of Israel's history, and the man who is given this single title, the, the man after God's own heart. The life of David is the longest account in the presentation of a single human life in all of ancient literature, not just the Bible, in all of ancient literature, and therefore a tremendous resource for us to be able to look at the life of a person, to see how we can make it or break it here on this planet. And you will see today that as David, as he goes through the trials of this life, as he goes through this personal desert that he is in, he is going to find a glimmer of hope. And I don't know what you're coming in here with this morning. But many of you are coming in in a place of wilderness, a place of isolation. And this desert place in which David finds himself is a place of his own making, and maybe it's your own making as well. For David, it was a consequence of his own sin. If you were with us last week, and Pastor Brian was speaking, he talked us through 2 Samuel chapter 12. And David's desert place is a consequence of committing adultery and taking Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and taking her to be his own. And even further, then he goes even further to the place where he murders Uriah to cover the whole thing up. So let me share with you something before we kind of get started here this morning. It's a dilemma that I have when I come uh, and and share with you from the pulpit this morning. On one side, I want to be able to show and to demonstrate the painful and sometimes irreversible consequences of sin so that it's so real, so that those of you that are on the brink of sin or those of you that are living in sin, that you will be scared of the results of the sin that you are living. And at the same time, I want to be able to give some of you, I want to give you some of you hope in the midst of those painful circumstances to show that your pain is, pain, your pain is real and it's part of your sin, but yes, God's mercy and God's grace is greater than all of our sin. I want to be able to show you both sides of that this morning. Amen? Because God can reweave things in your lives and mine. Even the consequences of your own sin, your own stupidity can all be reweaved for the perfectness of His perfect plan and His perfect and ultimate good for your life and for mine. If He turned the cross into the resurrection that he can turn your pain into triumph. I want to show you both sides this morning, so we better get moving. Today's message comes from uh, the biblical narrative given to us from 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18, but we have lots of material, like I just said, on the life of David to work with when it comes from him. So not only do we have the well-documented narrative that we get from from, uh, Samuel as he talks us through it, but we also get his own personal journal his own personal poetry and music that he composed when he's going through these things, written down and compiled for us in the book of Psalms. So that's where we're going to go uh, there this morning. I want to be able to take you on this journey so you can find your way back there again after uh, we leave here today. You need a copy of God's Word to be able to get there again because you're going to go through this and you're going to be able to need to find yourself back here again. So Psalm chapter 63 is where we're starting this morning. Psalm 63, and what you'll see in the subscript under the title of Psalm 63, you'll see this. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. That's pretty important for us this morning, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Beginning in verse 1. You, God, are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, and with singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. So those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and will become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So David is experiencing a period of self-quarantine in his own life. Seemingly without warning, he was forced to flee from Jerusalem, including the temple and the palace court, because of a rebellion that is led by his own son, the song that I just sang, the son Absalom. And because of David's sin in taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite in 2 Samuel 11, we're going to see David's family turn into total chaos. It's going to turn into a Jerry Springer show. It's a mess. It's March Madness for sure. How did we get here? Well, if you're going to go outside today, and I hope that many of you do, if you're, if you're watching from somewhere other than western New York, we're pretty excited. The sun is out. It doesn't happen a lot in Buffalo, so we're going to take advantage of it. And many of you are out walking this week, and it's just a beautiful week to be able to be out. And for many people who are in the service in- industry, particularly those who are unable to do uh, business last year, a lot of setbacks, a lot of layoffs, spring means something specific, something they're very excited about. Spring means wedding season. There's a lot of business uh, to be had. And who would ever want to celebrate their wedding in the middle of a blizzard? I mean, you, you, you want to do this in the spring. And spring is here. Banquet halls everywhere are rejoicing. As a pastor, I officiate many weddings. I'd be able to, to share with a couple and share good stories with them about their lives and, 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 and talk about what might be lying ahead for them. We talk about love and affection for one another, all of those really sappy things. But imagine if I was a prophet. Imagine a prophet performing the wedding ceremony. Imagine for me a moment, you are the wedding ceremony of King David and Bathsheba, the former wife of Uriah the Hittite. The prophet Nathan is officiating the ceremony and does something peculiar when it comes to a very familiar part of the ceremony, that familiar and iconic part of the ceremony, the marriage vows. Here's what it sounds like. I, David... Take you, here, repeat after me. We'll do this together. I, David, take you, Bathsheba, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for awful and still worse, and sickness and in sorrow, in tears and in treason, in weeping and in the wilderness, in the darkness and at the dawn, as long as we both shall live. Be crazy, right? To have a prophet officiate your wedding ceremony. But this is basically and exactly what happens. Will you take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 12? You'll hear some familiar lines here as I start to read through this. 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 10. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me, that's the Lord, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then, Nathan said, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. He's forgiven you. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son that is born unto you will die. In sickness and in sorrow, in tears and in treason, in weeping and in wilderness, in the darkness and at the dawn, as long as we both shall live. Those are the prophet Nathan's words as he speaks over David and Bathsheba's marriage. And you know what? Each one of these prophecies will come true. So let's take a look. Here's the first one. In sickness and in sorrow. In sickness and in sorrow. We continue on. Verse 15, the same passage. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, and he spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up off the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us. When we spoke to him, how can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. 19, David noticed that his attendants were whispering amongst themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. And after he washed, he put on lotions, he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And at his request, they served him food, and he ate. David fasted, and David prayed, and David threw himself before the Lord for seven days. And the child died. This shows that extraordinary prayer and fasting does not change God's mind. It put David in the right frame of reference, put him in the right place to be able to receive what he must from God himself. But it did not force God to change his plans. You see, extraordinary efforts of prayer and of fasting are not tools that we can use to get what we want from God. They're demonstrations, however, of a radical commitment, a radical submission and surrender to God's power and God's will in sickness and in sorrow. David then goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. This shows that David's extraordinary prayer, his seven days of fasting were answered. And God's answer was no. And David worshipped God anyway. In sickness and in sorrow, in tears and in treason. In tears and in treason. So time passes, grief begins to subside, but the prophecy that Nathan has placed over his life is still true. It is still going to get worse. To summarize, David's firstborn son Amnon develops a perverse crush on his stepsister. 
And when she wants nothing to do with him, he forces himself on her and he rapes her. Picking up in 13, verse 15, says this, Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called in his personal servant and he said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door behind her. So his servant put her out and he bolted the door after her. And she was wearing an ornate robe, for this is the kind of garment that the virgin daughters of the king, King David, wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head, and she tore the ornate robe that she was wearing. She put her hands on her head, and she went away weeping aloud as she went in tears and in treason. So Absalom, David's second-born son is heartbroken by this event. And he lets his sister come and live with him in his home after the rape occurs. And he cares for her from this point forward. He cares for her when seemingly no one else is going to. And she seemingly is, is confused and, and is of no worth to anyone after this for the rest of her life. And so he, in, in grace in many ways, he actually names one of his daughters after her. Tamar, his daughter. He can't believe what has happened to his sister. And that nobody, especially the king, David, is doing anything about it. You have to wonder, this disappointment, this absolute uh, disappointment towards his dad and towards the kingdom in all of this. I mean, his daddy is the giant slayer. Where's David now? And why is he not protecting his family? And so Absalom enacts a two-year scheme to take out vengeance on his brother. Two years after the rape, Absalom gets his brother drunk. He lures him out of the king's palace, and there he sets a trap for him, and he murders him. For those of you who were with us last week, doesn't that sound familiar? Getting someone drunk, luring them away from the palace, setting a trap for them, and murdering them. This is exactly the same way that David had Uriah murdered. The sin of David is being replicated by his son in sickness and in sorrow, in tears and in treason. And for three years, David and Absalom don't deal with the rift that has come between them. They just move on and pretend that it never happened. But in doing so, Absalom begins to, to plot against his father because of his disappointment in how his father David handled things. Because he had this deep love and affection and admiration for David, now it starts to turn. Love will do that sometimes. It turns into hate, into hostility for his own father, David. We know some things specifically about Absalom. He's physically a handsome man. One of the few in Scripture that we get details about how beautiful he is to look at. Not many people's outward appearance are described in the Bible, so he must have been impressive, to say the least. He also had impressive charisma because he succeeded in building a personal power base among the people of Israel right there under the nose of his father, the king. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Let's read this together. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, 
parentheses, he used to cut the hair once a year because it came too heavy for him, parentheses. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. What a weird thing to add. He would cut his hair, okay, but then he would weigh it? He would do this once a year. He would gather everyone around and he would take his hair after being cut and put it on the scales. And in our, our modern translation of what that is, that scales is five and a half pounds of hair on the scales. Why would he do that? Scripture often equates, and the Hebrews often equate, hair to strength and veracity. And we often see baldness in Scripture talked about by the Hebrews as a sign of weakness a sign of old age, a sign or a lack of intellect. I know, I know. Which one are you going to tell this guy that he lacks intellect? So no, that's not what Absalom looked like. Archaeologists have actually uncovered a picture of Absalom. Looks a lot like this. Yes, he was the Fabio of the ancient world. He commanded the attention when he walked into the room. When he walked into the room, you noticed this guy. Would you notice this guy if he walked into the room? Just like David used to. He was extremely proud of his long hair, and at the end of the day, he would lose his life because of it. But don't let me ruin the story. We'll get there in a minute. Chapter 15, verse 1, it says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself, that's important, he provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. As far as historians are able to, to, to find, this is the first example of chariots being used by the people of Israel. The first time that kings of Israel were using chariots. Because for many years, chariots were associated with the Egyptians. And there in Egypt, the way that they had cruelly treated the Hebrews as their slaves and used chariots and military strength to be able to keep them under their control. It was a memory of slavery. But Absalom here is building himself and creating for himself an entourage of henchmen and of strength. And he's quite literally standing outside of the gates of the city, flexing his muscles for all to see. Verse 2. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone would come in with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him. He'd say, what town are you from? He'd answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. That's important. He's trying to create a division within uh, Israel and Judah. Verse 3, then Absalom would say, look, your claims, they are valid, they are proper, but there's no representation uh, for the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed to judge the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case would come to me, and I would see that they would receive justice. See, Absalom was very shrewd in public relations. He understands the importance of a grassroots movement in politics. He's spending much of his time at the city of gates, city gates where the streets are filled with people entering and leaving the city. He's catching them there before they go into the palace. And as they gathered, he, he starts working the crowd. He makes friends. He listens to their problems. And he tells people how he thinks that their problems should be solved. He makes lots and lots of promises, none of which he could deliver on, but it didn't matter. He didn't have to. David's boy was out there. Absalom was out there drawing crowds unto himself. And it was inevitable that the whispers began spreading around the kingdom. 
being circulating. You know, we could use the change around here. This is the type of fresh, new leadership that we need. The old man, he's lost his step, and he should step aside and let young Absalom take the throne. And the crowds at the gate begin to, uh, at first they begin to evolve from what was, uh, was first a casual group of passerbys to now something like a political voting block. And just that quick, David was receiving the startling news that a coup was underway right under his nose within his own court. The very idea of a coup itself was unthinkable because David, David is the people's choice. David is the king by popular demand as well as divine appointment. But the poison-tipped sword that touches his heart is that it's his own son, Absalom. Verse 5. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take a hold of him, and kiss him. This is a kingly movement he's making here. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to ask the king for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom has stolen away the hearts of the people of Israel. So Absalom, he sets up his bureaucracy. He establishes his headquarters in nearby Hebron, which is just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And then he spreads the word throughout all of the kingdom. At the sound of a trumpet, he says, come, come to Hebron. Everyone who cares, everyone who wants a new type of government, a new type of way of living your lives, rally to the side. There's a new sheriff in town. And David must have been tortured inside with incriminating doubts swirling in his head. At this moment of decision, when the fate of the nation lies in the balance, this king, this king David, hesitates. The king could not decide how to act. And every moment that went by, every day of delay, solidified Absalom's retaliation and rebellion. Maybe his son was right. Maybe he had lost his step. Maybe he had. But you know what else? Sin has consequences. David and all of his leadership make a run for it. And he does so in the least kingly way possible. He flees the kingdom. He is barefoot. He is broken. And he is bawling his eyes out and weeping and in weariness. Chapter 15, verse 14 says this. Then David says to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us all and put the city to the sword. Did you catch that, friends? It's exactly how Nathan prophesied. Jump to 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. And then to summarize, as a display of power and as a display of strength, Absalom goes into the palace, takes the palace over, and there on the roof of the palace, he sets a pavilion there on display for all to see. And he takes David's wives. There were ten concubines that were left there to maintain the palace. And he takes them up to the rooftop, up to the pavilion for all to see, and he rapes them there. You see what's happening? Not only is this some pretty messed up stuff, would you agree? 
But it was there on the roof of the palace that David first looked his eyes out across the city and saw Bathsheba and committed the sin of adultery in his heart and went even further to take the wife of Bathsheba and to murder Uriah the Hittite. Sin has its consequences. Awful, deep-rooted, deep-seated consequences. As always, there are a few courageous few courageous men who are willing to stand there and stand firm with David even when his prospects are low. David, he flees from Absalom and he goes up the Mount of Olives, climbing the Mount of Olives and weeping as he goes. He's lost his kingdom, he's lost his family, and now he's running away weeping again. Where is the guy, where is the young man, the fierce young man who is bold enough to stand up to the giant who would dare defy the armies of the living God. Verse 30. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head covered, and he was barefoot. All the people who were with him also covered their heads too, and they were weeping as they went up. David is full of sorrow. He is mourning. He is weeping. He is shameful in the moment. And then the weirdest thing happens. He's climbing the Mount of Olives barefoot with his head covered in sackcloth, a sign of grief. And all the people around him are also doing the same thing. And then in one of the strangest encounters you could see in Scripture, chapter 16 says, as David is fleeing, as he is climbing up the side of this mountain, a guy named Shimei starts to come out to start to see the spectacle of this ragtag band dragging themselves up the hill with their tail between their legs, and he starts to heckle them. He starts throwing dirt on them, throwing it in the air, and even going to the extreme of picking up small stones and pelting David with them. David, the rightful king of the throne of Israel, getting pelted with stones and with pebbles. Yes, that's what happened. It's absurd. Verse 5, his name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, even though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and on his left. And he cursed Shimei. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. This is absurd. Isn't it a little bit funny to you? There's this guy standing on the side of the road just throwing rocks at the king. Like, like the troops are fully surrounded him, and, and, and he's feeling sad. He's having a bad day, and this guy just keeps tracking along with him. It's like, okay, fine, guy. Like, leave us alone. And he keeps throwing rocks and keeps throwing dirt on him. And it's shame, shame. You scoundrel. One of David's guards in verse 9 responds. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. I like this guy. That was like the John Wayne or the Indiana Jones or the Mandalorian character of the story. Like someone who's just going to take care of the problem. Depending on your generation, you got that, right? Someone's going to take care of this problem. Someone's going to put an end to this madness. Check out what David says. Verse 11. Leave him alone. Let him curse, for perhaps the Lord has told him to do so. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. 
See, this is the emotional wasteland that David is in, the isolation that he is in. He doesn't know which way is up. He isn't confident in his own decision-making or which direction to turn. He feels like there's a thousand voices all yelling at him, talking to him, telling him what to do. He doesn't know which way to go, and he doesn't know which voice that he can trust. He can't trust his family members. He can't trust his, his security guards that are around. He, he's not sure who he can trust. His advisors have left him. His sons have left him, and he can't hear God's voice anymore. Sound familiar? Ever been in that space before? I'm absolutely certain that you have. And why do I say that? Why am I so sure? Because sin has a way of doing that. And every human being here on this planet has experienced the result of sin. Romans chapter 5 tells us that sin has entered the world through one man, Adam, and as a result, all have sinned. Sin corrupts, sin destroys, sin confuses, and you, sir, and you, ma'am, are part of the sin nature experience that we all have here on the earth, where sin makes it incredibly hard for us to hear the voice of God. You see, God had told David this covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would be given an eternal kingdom that could never be taken away. And that he had taken David's sin and he had washed it away with hyssop and made him whiter than snow. And in this chapter, David can't hear that anymore. David has lost touch with that. He doesn't quite believe it anymore. He's not aware of God's voice speaking to him. God's truth has not yet saturated his soul. He's living with a guilt complex. He's living with a sense of condemnation. He has lost touch with the gospel, the good news. He has lost touch with the true eternal kingdom that was waiting in his lineage through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We'll get to that. First, let's finish the story. Verse 13. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, throwing stones at him, showering him with dirt. And the king and all the people arrived at their destination exhausted. Friends, some of you arrived here this morning. If you're watching from home, watching online this morning, you are arriving at this place exhausted. Emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausted. A place of personal quarantine. He takes his followers he retreats from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley into the desert of Judah. He hoped only there that maybe at a safe refuge where he could sort out this terrible mess that he had somehow allowed his kingdom to slip into. He hoped for silence from the noise and for long enough, time enough to hear God's voice in his ear once again. And that's where Psalm 63 comes in when he's in the desert of Judah. And there in the desert, David opens the pages of his journal. Pages that are stained with blood. Pages that are, are stained with tears had run down his eyes and dripped into his journal before. And he inscribes the words of Psalm 63. And thousands of years later, we can kind of look over his shoulder and see what it was that he was writing. Over his sad, slumped shoulders and peer into his journal and into his very soul in the darkness and at the dawn 
Psalm 63, verse 6 says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I will sing in the shadow of your wings. David is isolated. He's in the desert. His first impulse is to call out to God to come and comfort him. We can imagine it's there. It's in the night, and he's looking out into the lonely darkness, and he knows that the enemy is out there, and just like the enemy would probably be closing in on him, he he feels the darkness closing in all around him, and it's only a matter of time before the enemy will find him. And it's here that the king in exile starts to feel and realize that there's not only a gaping darkness around him, there's a gaping darkness inside of him, a hole inside of him that only God can fill. His family has deserted him. His subjects have rejected him. And he has had to come to a place where his only refuge, his only solace, his only opportunity for restoration is going to come from God himself. And here... And this moment is where David finds a glimmer of hope. He turns his gaze away from the struggles and the concerns that lie before him. He turns his gaze away from the darkness and the enemy that may be out there waiting for him. And he turns his gaze up to the heavens where his help comes from. That is where his hope lies and that is where he will find strength. And while he is in this moment, meanwhile, back in the palace, this is what's happening. While he's in his desert place, turns out God has already placed for him a friend in the palace of Absalom, on the inside of Absalom's operation, a friend who is going to very much save his life. 2 Samuel 17, verse 16 says this, Now send a message at once. Tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail over the Jordan, or the king and all of his people with him will be swallowed up by Absalom's army. Verse 22. So David and all the people with him set out and they crossed the Jordan. And by daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. See, when dawn was breaking, there was hope. Check out what happens in verse 6 of chapter 18. That morning, David's army marched out into the city to fight Israel, and a battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great. There were 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed more men. Did you catch that? The forest took more men's lives that day than the sword. God was literally fighting the battle for him. Verse 9, now Absalom, he happened to meet some of David's men. He was riding his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak. And Absalom's glorious and beautiful Fabio hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept going. Jump down to verse 14. So Joab took three javelins in his hand and plunged them. Joab is David's captain plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded him and struck him down and killed him. Ten, that's an important number because that's the number of wives that were raped there on the palace roof. Sixteen, then Joab sounded the trumpet. The troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab had halted them. What's David going to do? Back to Psalm 63. His journal says this, verse 8. Lord, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. We've talked about this here before. The right hand of God, the power, the might, the kingdom hand 
of God was going to uphold him. And that's exactly what happened. While David is there in the wilderness, in the darkness, waiting for the the morning light, God was fighting his battles already. So as Nathan's prophecy said, all the days of your life, David writes this down in a familiar passage for all of us. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the king that we need, the father that we need, is like David in some ways, but in so much more ways than David. Because King David was a father who actually dismissed his son. He let him fall away. He sings that song. He cries that song. Oh, I would have have done something if I didn't know that you were going to die out there. I would have died in your place, but he didn't. See, the reality is that all of us, you and me, who are in isolation and in pain and in sorrow because of our own sin are just like Absalom. We have all rebelled against God. We have stolen God's kingdom for ourselves. We have publicly humiliated him on the rooftops of our lives. But here's the difference. Absalom was driven to rebellion because of David's failures. He was not a perfect father. David showed us through his life the love that God showed him that David himself was not able to show. And while there in self-quarantine, while he's there, God is fighting his battles for him. Jesus tells a story in the New Testament about the prodigal son who had gone away. And what does the father do? He welcomes him back in. That's the story that we need to grab a hold of, friends. Because Absalom's story is a human story that cannot be corrected outside of the beauty of the gospel. You see, because David climbs the Mount of Olives in tears, thinking that the kingdom has fallen apart. And later in history, Jesus Christ himself will descend from the Mount of Olives. And when he descends from the Mount of Olives, he's going down into the pit, into the mire, into the sin of your life and mine. And he is crying, he is weeping because he knows the sin that wants to crush you. But God has made a way. David says, I would have died for you, Absalom, if I could, but he didn't. Our Heavenly Father says, I will die for you, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So this morning, I want to share with you the two hands. One hand that says, sin has its consequences. Stay away. And on the other hand, God's grace is sufficient for me. Dear Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. Lord, many are coming in this morning in darkness and they need to know that there is a glimmer of hope. If there's any here, Lord, that have not put their faith and trust in you, Lord, would they, would they do so today or certainly ask good questions, ask to start a dialogue of how does this look? How do I take the Savior of the universe and invite him into my heart to change and transform me? Lord, you are at work today. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. We focus our eyes on you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
this morning as we have worshipped. My prayer is that your eyes would turn to Christ. We're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision, hymn number 532. Let's stand together and let's make this our prayer this morning. God, be our vision. Be the one that we look to. You are the King of Heaven. And let's turn our eyes towards Christ. So let's all stand together. If you're joining us from home, you can sing along with us. The words will be there on the screen for you. Thank you. 